Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. So for this conversation, we're looking at the book of Judges, which sounds like something to do with the law courts. But uh, in a sentence, what is the book of Judges all about? Well, it's got nothing really to do with judges, as we would think of men or women with big wigs sitting in the law courts, though law did provide part of this. Maybe if we turned the title to something like spirit-anointed leaders, it might suddenly sound more attractive because that's exactly what the judges were. We're now in a period of Israel's history that follows that period of Joshua that we looked at in another episode where Israel is now in the land that God had promised them but struggling really to make it their own and the so-called judges were spirit-anointed men and in one case a woman that God raised up to rescue them from the mess that they got in. So spirit-anointed leaders, spirit-anointed rescuers might sound a bit more attractive and draws into the story more. So what kind of period does it cover from this point where they conquer Canaan? Yes, so we are looking at around about 1375 BC, which is around about the time of the death of Joshua, once they have done the main conquest of Canaan right through to around about 1050 BC when Israel will start to ask for its king. So this is a big period of history. What have we got there? 300 plus years, 325 years of Israel's history. And obviously it doesn't give us it all. And what it's going to do is open little windows at various points in that big sweep of history But what we're going to see is that as each window is opened, the story ends up being pretty much the same. So the people of Israel are in Canaan. They're in the promised land. They've been allocated the 12 tribes to different areas. They're living together. And you would have hoped things would be going swimmingly. You would, wouldn't you? But it wasn't. In fact, if I read just a little section of this is from chapter 2. And verse 6 from the New Living Translation, the after Joshua sent the people away, so it's just gone back a little bit in history there, each of the tribes left to take possession of the land allotted to them. Hooray! Yeah! But, (laughs) verse 7, the Israelites served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the leaders who outlived him, so the people that he'd trained, those who'd seen all the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. Now, instantly that flags something up to us. They serve the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and his fellow leaders. Well, you can see where the implication of that is going. And it goes on to tell us in verse 10 that after that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things that he had done for Israel. So that's an interesting point, isn't it? After that generation died, there was another generation. So what had happened here? Well, clearly the previous generation had failed to pass on 
in an adequate way, a gripping way, the story and the reality of God they and what God had done for them. And so this next generation have lost all that the previous generation had because it wasn't passed on. So we go on to read that the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. Remember, Baal was the chief god of the Canaanite religion. They abandoned the Lord God, the God of their ancestors who'd brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshipping the gods of the people around them. They angered the Lord and they abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth was one of the names of the wife, the consort of Baal. And this made the Lord burn with anger against Israel. So he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist them. And every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated just as he had warned. And the people were in great distress. In other words, they are in a mess because they've not done the thing that God had said to Joshua at the start of the book of Joshua, be strong and very courageous. Remember to do all that Moses commanded you from me. And clearly that previous generation had done it, but failed to pass that on adequately to this generation. And so what they're starting to do is to turn away from the living God to the worship of Baal. Remember, we've said previously that the worship of Baal wasn't just about little offerings to idols. It involved prostitution with temple prostitutes. So it it was highly attractive. And you're having sex with a prostitute at the temple, both male and female, by the way, was a way of trying to stimulate Baal and Ashtoreth in the heavens to have sexual relationships so they would release fertility upon the land. It was a fertility religion and highly, highly sexualized. And it was that highly sexualized nature of the culture around them that proved so attractive to the Israelites in this period. And one has to say, you know, it's pretty much a reflection of the culture in which we are in in the West, a highly sexualized culture where anything goes is the norm, where it constantly surrounds you, where there are constant opportunities. And therefore, the challenge of this book can be as much for us today as it was for them in their day. Who will you serve And that includes what you do with your body. So in the, what, 300 years or thereabouts that this uh, book of Judges covers, generation after generation still don't quite get it, still don't get the point, still don't understand. And who are some of these judges then that are brought in to try and change things? Yeah, I wonder if I, I could just pick up on something you just said right at the beginning of your question there, David, before answering that, because... It is this long period, and and it is very cyclical over this period. And I said at the beginning, it's like through this long period of history, we keep opening windows and we keep seeing uh, the same old thing again. And what happens here is, if I can just sum up quickly the overview of the book, 
God's people start drifting away from being true and faithful to God. And so God, who oversees the whole of history, allows various enemies from roundabout, sometimes from within the promised land, often from without some of those neighboring peoples, to come and attack them and to subdue them. And whenever that happens, Israel says, oh, God, we're really sorry. We see what you're doing. We repent. We're so sorry. We turn back to you. And so when that happened, God raised up a judge, a spirit anointed leader to act as a, a military leader to lead them against those enemies who'd attacked. It's often tribal rather than the whole of Israel. It's different parts at different times. And God raises up people in the north and south and east and west. And once God has rescued them from these attackers, Israel turns around and says, oh, God, thank you so much. We love you. We honor you. We worship you. We will never serve anyone else ever again. Oh, that's a lovely bail. And off they go, distracted to the bales and its sexualized worship again. And history repeats itself. And it repeats itself not just in a circular way, but imagine a circle going down and down a spiral. Because the thing we get as we go through the book of Judges, things just don't go round and round in circles. Things go down and down into ever-darkened days. And it's at different points on this downward spiral uh, that God raises up these spirit-anointed leaders. Now, we divide them up, or scholars divide them up, into uh, minor and major judges. And, and that's simply a reference to how much space is given to them in the story. But in all, we get 12 judges. Interesting, 12. You can see here the writer has selected he's picked 12 out why 12 well there were 12 tribes and actually his story is incredibly carefully constructed in the ancient world the key point of any book was not the end but the middle so we read a novel today don't we and the climax comes at the end but the in ancient world the climax came right in the middle of the text it was like the turning point you got in the aha and even if you couldn't see everything, you knew as you went on, ah, yes, that was it, wasn't it? And this central point in the book of Judges focuses around on the one side, Gideon, a great judge, and on the other side, Abimelech, his son, an anti-judge, the very antithesis of what it meant to be a judge because he wanted to be king. And then on either side of that, it's carefully constructed so that we get judges from when the earlier chapters from the south and from the west and then in the later chapters from the east and from the north. And if you look at the whole structure of the book, here's someone who sat down and carefully constructed the book. Why? To try and show us that throughout this whole period, actually the whole of Israel was affected in different tribes, in different ways, with different people attacking them, but that each time God raised up one of these spirit-anointed leaders. But, you know, if you, if you wanted a title for this book, it could almost be, here we go again, or maybe, will you never learn? And that's the message that comes out each time as we come to these individual judges. 
And as you say, some of them have more words devoted to them, more time spent telling their story than, than others. Yes. Which are the ones that are highlighted in particular? Well, some of the ones that, that stand out, let's just pick um, them out quickly. Um, one of the first ones is Deborah, the only woman who's a judge, very significant in this period, of course, when it was a very much a male-led culture. Uh, and in chapters four to five, we get the story of Deborah, who is actually a prophetess, we're told, more than anything else. So she brought God's word to people. And she asks a guy called Barak to lead the fight against the Canaanites. And he ends up saying, well, I'll go, but only if you go with me. I think he was a bit of a wimp rather than a warrior, really. And she says, okay, I'll go with you, but I want you to know because of this, you won't get the glory for this. A woman's going to get the glory for this. Again, in the culture of those days, very, very striking. And they lure this guy called Sisera into a trap in the big Jezreel Valley and uh, Sisera flees eventually. Some great stories here. Kids love these stories. Parents hate them, but the kids absolutely love them because Sisera, when he flees, dies through a woman called Jael driving a tent peg through his head and all the parents go, oh, and all the kids love those bits, don't they? And then we get the song of Deborah singing her praise to God. So chapters four to five, yeah, this woman Deborah that God uses. And each time in these stories, we read of how the spirit of God came upon them. And so this is not their natural ability, natural strength, natural cleverness. Each time the Holy Spirit comes upon them in a powerful way to enable them to do what they themselves cannot do, which is the constant role of the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture, even today, of course. So these aren't sort of necessarily heroes. They're people or heroines. They're, these are people that, that God used. Yeah, exactly. In fact, I think um, they're anything but heroes, really. You know, as you read through them, I, yeah, I, I think... Deborah might have been a, a bit of a hero, though she doesn't do the fighting herself. You know, she's the, the one who encourages and motivates. Gideon is the next one we come to. Well, I'm not sure you would call him a hero because he lives at a time when Israel or his tribe comes from the tribe of Manasseh uh, in the middle of the country there. And, uh, they are being attacked by the Midianites, the people who live to the east of the Jordan, going right down towards the Red Sea. And they, they were raiders and traders. And we come across him in chapter six, threshing wheat while hiding in a wine press. Wine presses were dug down into the ground. So there he is secretly threshing his wheat, you know, trying to do it on the quiet, we might say so that the Midianite raiders aren't going to come and, and steal the grain from him, which is what they've been doing. And there's great irony because God sends an angel to him while he's hiding away. He is secretly threshing his wheat. Uh, and he says, hail, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. You know, and, and if you ever doubt that God has got a sense of humor, well, <laughs> this story answers that. And it's interesting because Gideon then turns around and says, well, you know, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? An interesting question that people often ask, isn't it? If God is with us, 
Why has stuff gone wrong? Well, stuff's gone wrong because we live in a sinful fallen world among sinful fallen people. Stuff goes wrong at time and trusting in God doesn't guarantee that you will get a safe passage through life where nothing ever touches you. Christians get sick and have accidents and get sacked and lose their jobs like anybody else does at times. But the issue is God is with us through it. And the angel then says to Gideon, look, go in the strength you have. God's going to be with you. Having seen this mighty angel is a reflection of what this guy is really like. He then asks for a sign. You know, I, I need a sign to know that this really is God. Hello, what is this in front of you? <laughs> but he needs a sign which God graciously gives him. By the way, Asking for signs in scripture is really always seen as a lack of faith rather than a presence of faith. Graciously, God gives it because he knows what is in this guy's heart. And having got the sign, then he builds an altar to God. He pulls down the family altar to Baal. Whoa, I mean, that was starting to get quite courageous now, but he does it in response to what God says. And then when the Midianites start to gather and attack. The spirit of God comes upon Gideon. So we read in chapter 6, verse 34, that the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiezrites to follow him. And he sent messengers to the rest of Manasseh. This is characteristic of this period, the spirit of God coming upon him. And in chapter 7, they defeat the Midianites Great story in chapter seven, by the way. He has 32,000 men and he thinks, yeah, I can do it with this. So God says, no, I think you've got too many. So what I want you to do is to say to all your fighting men, look, if any of you are scared, you can go back home. And 22,000 <laughs> turn round, and he think, oh, I've only got 10,000 left now. And God says, no, that's still too many for me. <laughs> Take them to drink by the river there. And we're only going to choose those who put their hands into the water and make a cup to lap from their hands rather than who get down to the river. I think it was about attentiveness. Those who could keep looking around as they brought water uh, to their mouth rather than those who got down to the river to lick it up. And he ends up with just 300 men. And God says, with this 300, I will save Israel. And there's a powerful story. It's not about our resources, our money, our strength, our church side. If God has spoken, God will do it. And what Gideon has to learn is it's not about the strength of our numbers. It's about the strength of our God. And there's this great story in chapter seven where he goes on to defeat them. And he uses a little bit of a, a device to scare them being encouraged, having heard a dream from one of them, and then he's able to conquer them. I'm not going to give you the details because I want people to read this story, but it's a great story. So Deborah, a woman, Gideon, a man, you know, neither of these are like grade one material, as it were. Certainly Gideon isn't, and yet God uses him. By the way, when Gideon is successful in defeating the Midianites, they come to him and say, we want to make you our king. And he turns around and says, no, 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 no. You have a king. He is in heaven. 
Thank you very much. But in the next chapter, we discover, chapter nine, sorry, we discover that his son Abimelech, when it's his opportunity, he actually wants to become king. He wangles for becoming king. He tries to contrive them making his king. Sort of says, well, you know, is it better to have loads of different people leading you or, or just one? So it looks like there Gideon had not done a particularly good job in passing on to his son. So there's two of the bigger prophets in the first half of the book, Deborah and Gideon. And in this sort of gallery of 12 judges, as you've highlighted, I think Samson is in there. The question I was going to ask you is, would he be your choice to rescue people? <laughs> he would be way at the bottom of my list and your list and everybody's list. Yet Samson takes a big part of this story. Chapters 13 through to 16 are all about him. And it's the story of, of a guy who starts off with such potential. He's born, we discover in chapter 13, to barren parents through a miraculous intervention of God who dedicate him to a what's called a Nazarite vow. And that meant avoiding things like alcohol, not having your hair cut. Normally, that vow was temporary, just a, for a particular season and period. But they dedicated him for life to the Lord in that way. It came out of a good heart. You know, they were grateful to God for this gift of a child. But perhaps there's a warning there in pushing things onto your kids that they themselves have not embraced. But this guy doesn't look at all like the sort of person uh, that you would want to choose. Because in chapter 14, we discover that he wants to marry, wait for it, a Philistine woman. Oh, dear. Uh -uh. <laughs> hmm. The alarm bells should be flashing here. Now, the Philistines lived in five city-states down on the coast, but became Israel's traditional enemies. But he wants her. He's determined that he's going to have her. And there's a whole story in chapter 14 of how he gets his parents to pay the bride price for her. There's a story of a riddle that his wife coaxes the answer out to him and he then gets completely angry. And one of the things we see in these chapters is Samson's uncontrolled anger. This is not just a vengeful man. This is a cruel man. And in chapter 16, we find the story of him falling in love with a woman called Delilah. And that's one of those well-known stories. Again, a Philistine woman. Remember, God's people had been clearly told in the law they should not intermarry with people from other faiths and other nations. The command not to marry outside the faith is repeated in the New Testament for Christians. But he falls in love with Delilah. He is a man who clearly can't rule his sexual appetites. This is a big thing for him. And, you know, he ends up falling in love with Delilah. The Philistines get her to nag him for the secret of his strength. And he gives her various things, none of which are true. And eventually, you know, she wears him away. Uh, and he says, well, the truth is, you know, if my 
head is shaved because I took this Nazarite vow, I will lose my strength. Of course, he was right and he wasn't right because his strength wasn't to do with his hair. It was to do with his devotion to God and most of all with the spirit of God coming upon him because for Samson too, we find again and again, and the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he ripped this lion apart. The spirit of the Lord came upon him and he took the jawbone of an axe and so on. But he is nagged and nagged and nagged. He gives the secret away. His hair is shorn. His strength leaves him. And the Philistines are able to capture him, put him in jail. And the story ends in chapter 16 with him being brought out of jail on one occasion to be put on display. There's a festival going on in the temple of Dagon. Dagon was another of the Philistine gods and they want to bring Samson out to sort of show off the spoils of how great they were as Philistine warriors. And there in the temple, Samson, I think, has started to learn his lesson. In the jail, we read that, but Samson's hair started to grow. It's almost like a prophetic sign of God saying, I've not left you. I'm here. You only have to turn to me. And so in the temple, they, they tie his wrist to two of the stone pillars that held up the roof. And he calls out to God, oh, God, remember me one last time. Come and be with me one last time. The spirit comes on him and he pulls on those pillars and the entire temple collapses and kills all the Philistines in it. And, of course, him as well. Well, you know, this is not really the story of a brave warrior who gave everything for his people and for God. This is a guy who badly messed up and who needn't have wasted his life in that way if he'd lived life God's way. Uh, but he didn't. So there's another reflection of the sad time. And, you know, sometimes people have asked me, why on earth then did God use someone like Samson? And my answer is, well, this is one of the best he could find. This is a reflection of how bad these days were. Wow. Remember, not just round and round in circles, but down and down the spiral into ever darker days. Because though we think of Samson perhaps as a strong man, he was actually very weak. He was very weak. He was only strong because God's spirit came on him. The trouble is he forgot that. I think he started to think that it was him that was strong. Quite a warning and challenge to us there, isn't it? that we can think we as Christians are strong, that we as a leader are strong, that I am as a pastor am strong. No, we're only strong because of the strength and ability and gifting that God gives us. And he forgot that. So one of the best that God could find. So a whole bunch of leaders here who, frankly, you wouldn't really choose, but a reflection of these Dark and terrible days that Israel was in, turning constantly away from the living God to Baal and the highly sexualized practices involved in his worship. And God having to choose the best that he could find. And frankly, they weren't very good, but in his grace and his kindness and remembering his promise to his people, he used them nonetheless. You've used this sort of imagery of ever-decreasing circles, the the decline over, what, 300 years of God's people. It's a sorry state we're in now. 
It's an incredibly sorry state we are in. When we think of what God's plan was for his people, how he wanted them to be a living expression of his presence here on earth that would be attractive to all the nations, a promise that goes right back to Abraham. To find them now in such desperate days, again and again and again and again, and never learning, never learning, never learning. What a sorry state that they were in. God could have given up on them. And you know what? I think if I'd been God, I'd have said, blow this for a lot. I'll find someone else. But there's a little thing in scripture called the faithfulness of God. And when God makes a promise, God keeps a promise. Even when we let him down, even when we don't keep to our part of the story, and when we don't, it's the worst for us because there are often rough experiences to go through like we see in this book. But I think what stands out in this book is that God is a faithful God. He will not let go of the promise he has made to his people. And no matter how bad things get, God ultimately always has a plan. Now, in this book, it's a tide-them-over plan. But as we move down the bookshelf into the books that follow, we'll see that this period will lead to the next phase in God's plan and him maintaining his faithfulness to his people to do what he promised to Abraham. So, do you know, if God has made us a promise, even if it doesn't look like things are working out at the moment, yeah, check if there's something in your own life that's hindering that. But keep hold of God's promise. He is faithful. He doesn't let his people go. And in the end, his purpose will always triumph. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Tabernak. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.